Hello and welcome to Change My Mind. I'm Ali Goldsworthy and I'm really lucky to be joined today by Laura Osborne, who's Director of Corporate Affairs at London First. Hello, very happy to be here, Ali. And by Alex Chesterfield, who is a Conservative politician and behavioural insight expert. Hi everyone, so I'm, I'm really thrilled. I'm, I'm currently just also drinking a gin tea, which makes me feel even more, more thrilled to be yeah. here. As Alex might be suggesting, we, we for once are all three of us in the same place and not split across the um, Atlantic. Um, we're in the Century Club in London and we're very lucky to be joined by two guests who we'll be introducing later who have kindly um, sponsored us um, to be here tonight. Uh, one is shaking his head saying he hasn't sponsored us, but he so far has bought us all of the drinks we're well, consuming. And he did, let it, he did let us in. Yeah, so I think he said a fairly good job of sponsoring us but he is not our fantastic guest on the episode today who um is the most senior elected politician that we've had on or probably are likely to have on um we're joined today by Carwin Jones, who used to be the first minister in Wales. And for that time, he was most of that time, he was the most senior elected Labour politician within the UK. Um, Carwin was the assembly member for Bridgend um, between 2009 and 2018. He was the first minister of Wales and leader of the Welsh Labour Party. First elected to the assembly in 1999, he joined the cabinet in 2002, holding roles where he oversaw education, culture and the Welsh language, agriculture culture and rural development and the environment. His last year prior to becoming First Minister was as Council General and Leader of the House. He was really well equipped for those roles because Carwin is a barrister, or for our American listener, a lawyer who generally wears a wig, one of those ones you see on TV. Um, and that's his background. He specialised in criminal, family and personal injury law. He was born in Bridgend in South Wales, which is also the Bridgend South Wales is where I'm from. Um, it's the best place in the world, as might come up in this podcast. And Cowan was educated at Aberystwyth University and the Inns of Court School of Law in London. We're really pleased that he's joining us today. So, Carwin, thank you very much for coming on okay. Change My Mind today. It's lovely to have you here. Um, you're the former First Minister of Wales. About half of our listeners are out in the States, so that will be a title that they're not familiar with. Could you explain a bit about what your job involves? Yeah, sure. It's um, kind of like being the Prime Minister of Wales. I suppose for audiences in the States, the, the closest America gets is a, is a governor. Uh, it's not quite the same because I'm a, a member of the um, of the parliament here as well uh which is not quite the way it works of course in the in the states but um yeah basically in our system uh the leader of the largest party who can command a majority in the assembly becomes the first minister uh, and i did that for nine years which was a pretty long stint yeah yeah long stint too long actually i think you know i think it's um it's so full-on these days especially with social media responses have to be very quick you know as long as it was 20 years ago when you know, you had to give out a press release or make a TV interview. These days, it's the pace has picked up considerably. Yeah, I, I bet. It, and it's quite different. And um, whilst I talk about being from Wales quite a bit on the podcast, like, I wondered if they could hear from you. How do you tend to describe Wales other than, I tend to say the bit that's not England, Scotland or Ireland and be delighted if they've heard of it? Well, Wales <laughs> uh, is a nation. Uh, you don't have to be a, a sovereign state to be a nation. We're one of the four constituent nations of the UK. Uh, England is by far the biggest, which is why people confuse England with Britain. Uh, the Welsh language, which is spoken by about 20% of our people, is the original language of the island of Britain before English uh, came along. Uh, and since 1999, we've had our own semi-autonomous uh, government. But we have our own sports teams, uh, our own international football team, got the Euro semi-finals in 2016, and our own international rugby team who have just become the champions of Northern Europe. 
Yeah, and well, they're they're pretty amazing at rugby. It was last weekend that happened. In it's not bad for three million people. <laughs> <laughs> it isn't bad for three million yeah. people at all. So um, oh, I'm sat here in Carwin's office with him in Cardiff Bay, which is where the Welsh Parliament is. Um, and you are now how old? If that's not too recent? fifty-two on Thursday, and and you've retired as an effect prime minister. Of well, Wales. yeah, it's it's a bit funny to think about retirement at my <laughs> age. It's yeah, time to move on to other things. To be honest, I mean, you have to remember you you hold the job in trust for somebody else. It's not yours by right. There are very few politicians who can determine the terms and timing of their own departure. I was lucky enough to do that. And, uh, you know, somebody else deserves a go. You have to remember that. You can't stay there forever. And uh, you can never be as fresh at the end as you are at the beginning. Well, and you sound pretty reflective. And as we were talking a little bit beforehand, and I'm sure we'll come on to that, I get the impression that you might have thought and gone back or or changed your mind on issues, maybe... um, a little more it's easier to once you've left office do you think that's a fair reflection or was it easier to when you were younger I think when you're younger your views are far more uh, solid because you don't quite see the the gray areas that uh, emerge when you're active in politics particularly when you're in government and you can see that things aren't quite as clear as you might have thought that they uh, that they were so it was it Keynes that said that when the uh, the facts change so does my mind Uh, and there are times when things change. You have to reassess. You can't just be dogmatic and take the same approach over and over and over again, which is uh, the theme of the UK Parliament at the moment. (laughs) We'll come on to that. (laughs) Flying into a a, a window all the time. You know, you have to be, uh, you have to adapt to the circumstances. But that's really interesting because, you know, actually most people don't change their minds with facts. Mm. Like there are really terrible, I mean, that's why the EU's approach for so long on persuading people to like Europe didn't really work. So I'm wondering if you've, if that works with you and you find facts change your mind, what's the process that goes on behind that? Thought. I think you, I mean, your principles stay the same. You know, they, they don't, they don't change, but the world changes around those principles. If somebody had said to me in 1999, when I first got elected, well, you know, what's your view on social media? I thought, what are you talking about? You know, one of the main issues that we face now is the, the free, platform for hate speech that social media provides now like 20 years ago that wasn't an issue at all because it didn't exist no uh, so you, you have new things that, uh, that, that 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 come about and there are some issues on which you do start changing your mind you're for i'll give you an example we're looking to remove the what's called a defensive reasonable chastisement uh in law which means that the parents can smack their kids basically they can't bruise them or cut them or anything like that but they can still uh smack their kids now when I first looked at this, I thought, mm, I'm not sure about this because so many people have done this um, without any malice towards their children. I'm, I'm worried about criminalizing people who shouldn't be criminalized. I've changed my mind since then. Uh, I still don't think people should be criminalized, uh, I think, but I think it sends the right message out. But you have to have the structure in place to make sure you don't suddenly find lots and lots of people being charged and lots and lots of people going to court. And. I mean, that's what was it that changed your mind? Just thinking about it, and the you know, the advocacy of some of the people who felt passionately about it, and also the fact that I could see there was a practical way forward uh, that would mean that people weren't just charged all the time. You could say, "Well, hang on a second, this is the first time. Don't do it again. We'll help you not to do it again." It would diverting people away from the courts, uh, and those worries, from my point of view, have largely been met. You're a dad now of two, yes. Mm, yeah. Did that have any impact? Do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, you, you change. I mean, when I was when I was little, we were all given a clip around the ear. That was the way things were, even in school, of course, in the uh, in the seventies. I mean, you could get caned in school in the seventies. Did you get caned? No, I had a dap though. 
Oh, what did you do? Dap, what did you that's do to a training get the, shoe. Yeah, what did you do to, or a sneaker? What did you do to get the dap? I can't remember. It was it was a favorite tool of PE teachers, or phys ed teachers, as, as, as they've been known in America. It was, you know, if you give any lip to a PE teacher, the dap would come out, and that would be uh, that would be it. Uh, or alternatively, uh, the other punishment was to climb up the wall bars in the gym and then hang upside down like a bat until <laughs> you were told to come down. Anyway, those days are gone. And um, it, it just struck me, you know, my kids, I did give them a clip now and again, nothing hard. And I thought, well, really, would I do that again? And uh, I, I wouldn't. Yeah. They're teenagers now, anyway. Uh, I thought, well, if you know, my mind has changed on it personally and um, I'm you know, happy to to see a change in the law. And do you think that when you talk about the fact that you've changed your mind and why, do you see mm. other people respond to that? Yeah, I think, well, I think so. I mean, you have to be, when there are new issues that arise, uh, you have to look at those issues and, and examine all the facts. That's, that's what I like to do as an ex-lawyer. Uh, and, you know, some things you don't change. You know, I'm not going to change my view on how an economy should work. I'm never going to change my view on what a good education system should look like. Uh, but when it comes to issues uh, such as, you know, the, the, the legal defence that we have at the moment when it comes to issues such as you know, the social media and its advantages and its perils, well, yeah, you have to adapt. But you were, like, I would observe you're really unusual in that, that facts change your mind. Um, because most people, it's their stories or their own experience that change their mind, or they just find it really difficult to. There's a difference between changing your outlook uh, with regard to a particular policy and changing your principles. You don't change your principles. That's what your... Um, that's what you're built on. That's what your political character is built on. But on top of that, it's a bit like having a house. I mean, you, you have your house and you like your house and that's it. You're not going to change it. But sometimes there'll be changes in small changes inside. And it's interesting you say that because one of our old guests, Deborah Mattinson, who I guess you might know, who used to be Gordon Brown's pollster, um, uh, and chose not to vote for the Labour Party at the last election. She was like, I haven't changed my principles. Like the party has moved away from me. Um, and I think people do find it, much harder to either to change it or to admit that they've changed in that way because it's much more seismic. It is. It is. I mean, because people, if you're in full-time politics, you've made a strong commitment, obviously, to, to a political party. And it, it, it sits very uneasily uh, on you if you find that, that you're no longer in tune with that party. That doesn't apply to me personally. Yeah. Uh, but other people have said that about every party you know, in, in the last few decades. Well, and they'll keep carrying on saying that. They will. You know? yeah, they will. And it's much more common for people to say that outside, actually, the UK and the US than it is almost anywhere Yeah, else. it is. But that's because of the electoral systems. I mean, yeah. it, our electoral system forces people of quite different views to come together under the banner of one party. It's even more acute, of course, in the States with the system there. Whereas in other countries, you'd have a number of different parties reflecting different grades of viewpoint. In the UK, you've got two large parties, effectively, uh, at, the, at the moment, and um, they are very, very broad umbrellas in terms of the people who are members of them. Yeah, ex exceedingly broad. And I should say we're recording this um, uh, currently on Tuesday morning. Um, that might have changed by Tuesday evening or indeed... <laughs> Thursday the whole thing morning. Will be in the next 24 hours, yeah. <laughs> this has been the very quickest time. And I'm always yeah. really interested, like, in the Netherlands, they had an animal welfare party for a while yeah. that had more votes than the, party, the sister party than what I used to be a member of, which, mm. you know, would always be interesting when you went to big European events. And how's, how's the elections going? You managed to beat the animal welfare party yet? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't very good then. Now, you've told us, Carwin, that you've changed your mind um, on something quite big and quite topical at mm. the minute about Brexit and whether we should have a, a second referendum here on that. What is it that's triggered that change? Okay, well, it's a journey. I mean, I, I was never um, in favour of a second referendum uh, after the, the first one, uh, certainly the first few years, because... 
you know, we had a referendum here in 1997 to establish devolution. It was quite close. And there were people then calling for a second referendum. In fact, it was the policy of the Conservative Party to have a second referendum. Now, I argued against that. I could hardly argue in favour of it because it suited me this time around. Because uh, we moved on from there. You know, devolution now has enormous support in Wales. Uh, that it, Just to explain that to American audience, the, uh, the, the Welsh Parliament and the Welsh Government as, an institution, as two institutions have enormous support in Wales. Now, uh, for me, uh, I took the view this is a matter for Parliament to sort out. They haven't done. Uh, at the moment, there's political deadlock. Well, how do you break that deadlock without going back to the very same people that took the decision in the first place? This is what happens when you have a referendum on an idea, not a plan. You know, we had our referendums here on devolution, uh, autonomy. If people voted in favour, they could see what would happen. There was a document that told them exactly what would happen if they voted in favour. None of that existed with Brexit. And so everybody has their own interpretation of what people voted for. Uh, and so we have this this deadlock. Now, there comes a point, I think, where you say, well, hang on. The only way to settle this, and this is true whether you're a Remainer or a Brexiteer, by the way. The only way to settle it is to say, look, you know you know the circumstances. Now you know what the plan looks like. Do you want to remain or leave? And if you want to leave, do you want to leave with the Prime Minister's deal or with no deal? Settled. Now, Brexiteer or Remainer, that ends the argument. And we've been having this argument for the past three years, and it's paralysed government across the UK. Yeah, and I, I'm not sure it is going to go away particularly. I know. And and so, but what was it that particularly? Because you said you weren't in favour of it in Wales when there was mm. a devolu- when there was a, a referendum here. Were you in favour of the first referendum, by the way? And of that, of uh, sorry, of the uh, referendum in 2016, which was to ask whether we should stay or leave the EU. No, you weren't in favour of that. Well, I, I didn't see why. I mean, it, it, you have a referendum if uh, a party standing on the basis of having that referendum is is winning lots of seats. You could win. Yeah, well. And also, it was badly right. I mean, I said David Cameron thought he could win it all himself because he saw that he'd done that in Scotland. Uh, And secondly, uh, the timing was awful. Uh, The referendum was six weeks after elections in Wales, Scotland and London. To win these uh, referendums, you have to have a cross-party campaign. And there was no chance of putting a cross-party campaign together in six weeks. We'd just been knocking lumps out of each other in an election campaign. So the timing was, was horrendous. And and I, were you shocked by the results or not? Yes, I was surprised, I must say. I thought it might be close, uh, but I didn't think that, that uh, I don't think anybody thought uh, that people would actually vote for Brexit, not even Bre- the Brexiteers themselves. No, well, and, and they said that quite publicly, mm. you know, and the same ones as well as the ones that are... But you have to remember that less. people voted for many reasons that had nothing to do with Europe. The, the two main reasons I heard on the doorstep were A, people wanted to kick David Cameron, as they put it, because they saw it as a battle within the Conservative Party. And secondly, a protest against globalisation. They didn't put it that way, but people would say, well, look, my father worked underground or in the steelworks. It was a good job, well-paid, unionised, pension at the end of it. I have none of those things. I want to to protest about this. Now, the fact that that Europe had nothing to do with it didn't matter. This was my chance, people were saying to me, to, to protest and say I've had enough of what you need to describe as, as, as free market liberal economics. And the problem is a lot of the Brexiteers, hardline Brexiteers, are off the scale in terms of you know non-interventionist economics, which is not what people voted for. Lots of those people voted for more government intervention, not less. Well, or for government intervention from a different place. Yeah, I mean, they wanted, you know, the, you saw it then in 2017, where a very left-wing manifesto from my party's perspective, uh, including you know a fair degree of nationalisation, got a huge amount of support because the reality was people, 
lot of people voted to leave the EU, not because they wanted to become a new Singapore, but because they wanted to have much more government intervention to create fairness in society. That's the reality of it. But you, know, you have some people saying now, well, what we need to do is have no tariffs at all. It doesn't matter whether other people put tariffs on us. We'll have a zero tariff economy. If we lose jobs as a result, well, you know, that's all part of the way the market operates. Well, that's great if you have robots operating in an economy, not human beings. And I think a lot of those hardline Brexiteers, who are all rich men, actually, a lot of them, uh, their, their agenda is to create some kind of massive free market end, you know, the provision of the free healthcare and, and turn Britain into some kind of you know, PLC, effectively. Yeah, and though I do find it in the interests, I guess, partly of balance, but also just to, to explain, like there were, were some people involved in Brexit who who actually just thought that the UK would be in a better place rather than having yeah. that as the end no, point. So they're, unfortunately, they're actually very absent now from the debates. So well, they, they, they were told that it'll be fine. We'll have a deal. The German car manufacturers will force the German government to uh, force the EU to come to a good deal with the UK. Well, the EU is eight times bigger than the UK. This is not a negotiation between equals, and the whole thing was nonsense. Yeah, I mean, it, certainly at the time watching it, it was almost, it was quite distressing, um, as a, I say, as a Remainer. I mean, Alex, who, who comments afterwards, she, she voted leave, I think. But, um, uh, you know, it, watching a campaign that was so badly run and there being no real substantive debate, completely compared well, to the quality all of theoretical. discussion here in Scotland. You know, yeah. I, I, I debated against Nigel Farage, and he could come up with all manner of things. But I couldn't rebut because there was no way of doing it because it was hypothetical. Uh, the only thing I, I could I nailed him on was when he said that seventy five percent of our laws are made in the EU. I said, "Well, where's that figure from then?" Oh, a German chancellor. I said, "Which one?" Uh, I didn't know. So there we are. But the rest of it, if somebody says to you, "We'll be fine," you can say, "We won't be fine." But there's no way of there's no evidence no. one way or the other. That well, was the, the, that was the problem. The we were arguing about hypothesis, yeah. not about facts. And now we know the facts but what's going to happen, all those things that were said in 2016, none of them have come true. And none you, of the arguments that Brexit has put forward have actually happened. And do you think that a second referendum would go differently? I think there will probably be a Remain vote this time. It wouldn't be you know, uh, an incredible change, I don't think. I think we'd, we'd be looking at maybe 54, 46 to Remain because people haven't seen the effect of Brexit, remember? I mean, people say, well... We were told it would be awful. It isn't. Well, we haven't left yet. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think it would be Remain, but I think it would be, I don't think it would be an enormous vote one way or the other. And do you think, I suppose, just in terms of how polarised the country's become on these lines and also tired and sick of it, but simultaneously holding <laughs> quite conflicting views, do you think that will actually put the issue to bed particularly? Well, I mean, the UK is very divided and I've always said that Brexit done badly carries with it the seed of the UK's own destruction. In other words, the ending of the UK, yeah. you know, independent Scotland, Northern Ireland joining the Republic, even even perhaps an independent Wales at some point. Uh, all the things that I you know, I wouldn't want to see, uh, but th that's where it's going because people, you know, what people are seeing is the union not working. You know, the suspicion that loads of money is being thrown at Northern Ireland and nothing to Scotland and Wales. Well, you know, what's the point of the union if it's kind isn't, of true as well? Operate? That point, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, what's what's the point of, of having a union? It's a fiscal union. If there's one rule for one and another for, for everybody else. I mean, it, it doesn't work. Uh, and, you know, the DUP have to be careful because they are acting as Northern Ireland nationalists, demanding more money uh, and not really caring about the union as a whole. They only see it through their own lens in Northern Ireland uh, and seeing the effect of, of what they're doing on Scotland and Wales people being, and people becoming annoyed with it. Yeah, and I, I, I completely share your view. And I think 
things will get worse while before getting better actually for quite quite a long time sadly so i'm just curious because your position is now slightly at odds with your party leadership in westminster i don't think there is a settled position in westminster uh, if i'm honest and i can understand why because there are so many different permutations well, I think that's one of the things that's really hard is this was what we would call a free vote issue. So it didn't matter which party you were in, you could go somewhere else Hope without, well, hopefully at the time, without follow-up difficulty. But actually then when you try and whip people along party lines afterwards, well, it's pretty uh, impossible. There are some people who want a second referendum, there are some who don't. Uh, there, are, there are various different degrees of relationship with the EU that um, Labour MPs would, would want. Some would be happy with the, you know, one or two would be happy with the no-deal Brexit. Uh that's the nature of politics. Uh, there is no set view amongst the party leadership uh, in London of either party, really. And I don't think that's necessarily a weakness in my own party because it means you can be flexible and, and adapt according to how the circumstances change. And at the moment, they're changing every day. But if you were if you were an MP, and I think it would be a better place if you were, for, for, <laughs> for what it's worth, you might want to wish that it. on me, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it might want to, might want to break. Um, but how would you, there was a vote the other day where Labour chose not to vote in favour of having a second referendum on the whole. And would you have gone with the whip there or would you have broken well, it? There was a timing issue there as well. I mean, not even those who are in favour thought that was the right time yeah. to do it. Oh, yes. Uh, so I, 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 I could understand the why that was done. I think you, you can't just be, be gung-ho about these things. You have to wait for the right circumstances to, uh, to arrive. But I just can't see an alternative. I just can't see how this can be sorted without a referendum. I mean, for me, yeah. uh, having said that, if the government turned around and said, well, look, uh, we'll get as much access as possible to the single market, we'll stay in the customs union, actually, I think that would be enough for me to say, okay, we don't need a second referendum. Yeah. Uh, because the the harmful effects of Brexit would pretty much be mitigated. But uh, anything beyond that, and I know I wouldn't be happy at all. And the problem is there's no way of knowing... The only way we can determine what people are thinking is to look at how they've voted since the referendum. And in 2017, the Prime Minister said, vote for me and you'll get a hardish Brexit. And people said no. So we know that. But well, they said people, not quite. Not yeah, now. not quite. I mean, pe- people talk about the fact that, you know, well, Parliament's going against the will of the people. The Parliament was elected after the referendum. Yeah. It's more representative of, uh, of uh, the viewpoint of people now, chronologically, than the 2016 referendum was. And it's certainly more recent, more recent, as you say. Yeah. And there's one question that we ask all of our guests, which is, um, and often they quite enjoy nominating somebody here. But um, who would you like to hear from on what they changed their mind about and why? Wow. Do you know, am I allowed, allowed living or dead or both? Well, but you can definitely take both. Yes. We like to approach okay. them to ask if they could do it. So one who's alive would be helpful. Mm. Oh, he's alive. All right, okay. Oh, but you can take Dad as well one. if you want well, to still Nelson time. Mandela. I mean, Nelson Mandela is the person I would have most liked to have met yeah. when he was alive. Uh, and ask him, not why, but how he managed to go from uh, willing to take direct action against apartheid uh, to 27 years of imprisonment to forgiveness. I think that's incredible. I, I, as, a, as a character, as a person, uh, I look up to somebody like that who fought against injustice was willing to go to prison for it, uh, and was willing to come out and show reconciliation. Now, that was what it was all about. Uh, and having done that, I think that's that's absolutely uh, absolutely incredible. I think in terms of somebody who was who was alive, uh, I suppose that the the person I'd like to talk to more than anything would, would have been Tony Blair and the and the Iraq War. You know why we went from. 
a position where we were not looking to intervene in, in Middle Eastern countries to one where he felt we should do. Uh, you know, and, and, he, and he's been very strong in defending his position since. Yeah, I, it's almost so strong it's impossible for him to admit that he got something wrong. Or yeah, you is. know, and that's a that's a theme through U.S. politics. Actually, if you end up talking to pretty senior Republicans, so I ended up in a room with Condi Rice, and she like is a huge fan of Tony Blair and can't see that there's any downside mm. to engaging with him. Couldn't believe that he didn't end up as the EU president, and why there yeah. might be any hesitancy um, around that. But yeah, he would be a good one to get on. You never know; we might be yeah. able to manage it. <laughs> to go from there. <laughs> Cowan, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been lovely to talk to you. No, thanks very much. It's good to see you again. Yeah, cheers. Thank you. Cheers. So that concludes our interview with Carwin. I did that face-to-face um, in Cardiff with him and we're now back at the Century Club to talk about what we might want to pull out of that. I'm here with Laura and with Alex. Hello. Hi. Um, And we're also really lucky to be joined by a returning guest who um, we were scheduled to have dinner with everything overran in the way of the British trains, which appears to be a recurrent theme um, here. So Steve Martin is with us. Hello, Ali. Um, And also with us, I'm very pleased to have my first boss who tolerated me at 19, Rob Blackie. Hello, I'm still tolerating you. (laughs) (laughs) We're not going to say how many years on, though. (laughs) Yeah, I'm looking forward to later. Thanks, Alex. Luckily, I've got no memory. We can all just talk about tolerating Ali. <laughs> yeah, let's not. Let's talk about Carwin. Thanks. So, Sorry, Sorry. so a couple of things really stood out to me from um, Carwin's podcast, which was where he talked about facts changing his mind, and that being what had affected him when he was talking about corporal punishment. So. Yeah. Um, just to make sure that this is, is clear for all of our, our listeners, actually, it used to be okay to use a defence of reasonable chastisement um, in bits of the, the UK for why you might smack a child. Um, and that law is changing, at least in, in Wales. It can change in different places, like in different states in the UK. And Carwin said it was the facts that changed his mind. And I know I was going to ask Alex about this because facts are not notoriously awful at changing people's minds, aren't they? So your previous guest said that policymakers in particular think that facts often change minds, but actually it's much more, um, I guess it's much more about tapping into people's other emotions. So my first thought was when he said about the facts, I was like, well, who was, who was delivering the facts? So actually back to Steve's point and the topic of Steve's next book, about that it's not what you say, it's about who says it. So in that circumstance, I'd be asking Carwin, who was the, who was the, who was the messenger in that Uh, context. Yeah, and he was saying that it was some of the advocates who came up and spoke for children. And I think that's, and also talked about, he was really concerned. And I guess as as parents, actually, there's a number of parents around the table um, today, that he was really worried that people doing something that was perhaps slightly normal or reasonably mainstream, that you'd criminalise that very common activity. And he was reassured that that probably wouldn't be what happened. Mm. But I think, well, before we have a conversation, though, actually, to what extent and this is Steve, your point, to what extent is Colin changing his mind versus just updating his beliefs? So how strongly held was that viewpoint originally? Steve, do you want to? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I So I was saying a few moments ago that uh, I recall us, Alex and I, having breakfast at Waterloo Station back in November, I think it was. And you know, you talked to me about this great podcast you do and you ask all guests when was the last time you demonstrably changed your mind about something and I remember after leaving you that uh, I, I was thinking I changed my mind all the time and then I started to think well 
actually, do I change my mind all the time or am I merely updating bits of knowledge? And how many pieces of knowledge or how many facts are required before I do demonstrably change my mind about something? And, and so I think there's maybe an element of that. Yeah. Um, and perhaps an, an element of, of one's past experience and, and, and history as well. So, you know, I'm a child of the 70s, so I got a thick hear occasionally from mum or dad. So and, and so to a certain extent, <laughs> does that... <laughs> Annie's like can of worms, can of worms. No, I was like, I did. I was the perfect child, but I want to know what you two did. <laughs> Laura, it was also a perfect child. No, I wasn't. My mum memorably smacked me, but only once. What so for? I felt that uh, being was excessively it? challenging. That <laughs> <laughs> was about eight. <laughs> uh, disrespectful. Were you disrespectful? Yes. Sorry, Steve. Probably. Well, no, no. So it's kind of interesting that, that I can't remember being smacked, but I know I was because it happens quite often. The fact that you can remember one instance, yeah, once, I think, yeah. probably signals the severity of, you know, or, or how stark or how out of character that situation was. Yeah, I was kind of yeah, smacked a few times and it, it became kind of part and parcel of, of life. So I don't know if, if that normalizes it makes it a little more you know kind of acceptable from some of my era yeah. I, I don't know i also wonder who like, was there in, in again in that context who else was changing their mind you know was it was it that at that point Carl was in a minority well it's certainly part of a broader change in society yeah. you know so yeah. but you know i think it, it's unusual now i said yeah i think that's right for for parents to I'm looking slightly at the parents. Yeah, no, room, I think that's true. Me. My it was children interesting. punched me the whole time. Oh, yeah. Like I, the I, violence I've goes taught the them martial way. arts. And so, <laughs> but they've, they've been very firm on it. Can't leave any uh, lasting red mark. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> on you or on them? <laughs> well, either, well I, they don't care about me. Or they said they've explained to me the law. <laughs> and we have discussed this. <laughs> and we've come to an agreement. I'll only hit them about hard enough not to do that. <laughs> It was funny though, Ellie, when you were talking to Carl and Elliot, because he did talk a bit like that change in view was automatic. So quoting Keynes and saying, if the facts change, your view changes. And actually, it's not just your view, you know, to your point, it's like actually the whole situation or paradigm that you sit within changes. And then maybe you change your view because you're changing your, as I think he said, you're changing your outlook on something, not necessarily your principles. Yeah, and it did strike me that it was a super lawyer's response, you know, mm. to what we were talking about. That someone who has spent their entire time consuming huge amounts of information, then evaluating them and trying to base things and update things on fact. And I remember Alex on previous occasions, you've said that actually policymakers are not always all that better at divorcing fact from other things that influence their judgment. No, I think, and I think the research shows as well that experts from whatever domain, so whether it's policymakers, scientists themselves, are are not are still prone to the these biases or the way rules of thumb or whether make decisions as as, to, as as all of us are. Hmm. Not any any different. Yeah, no doubt. There's no doubt. Yeah, these these things are kind of universal. Yeah. So it made me think actually, because one thing that you touched on with him, Ali, was about arguing um about hypotheticals. So when you touched on Brexit and the reality of you know how things are now um, compared to voting on an idea, not a plan, and how you can change your, how you may not change your mind about an idea because it can stay sort of evergreen because it's just a 
just a hypothetical scenario versus changing your mind on something that's like real and upfront and experienced. Uh, there's a fascinating thing about the polling, which is if you frame any polling question about Brexit to do with what happened in 2016 when British people voted to leave the EU, most people give an answer that basically is entirely driven by how they voted in 2016. And only about 8% of people have consciously changed their minds. But if you ask about the future and you basically ask, would you, how would you vote today in a slightly differently framed choice, um, quite a significant number of people, maybe twice as many people have changed their mind mm. uh, because of that. So it means actually if there is another campaign in Britain, uh, I think who wins it will come down to whether or not it's a rerun of 2016 or whether or not it's a new campaign. Slightly different question, more future-focused. Mm. Yes. So people don't feel they have to be consistent, I guess, yes. with their previous... Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Actually, I was going to mention that because that's entirely in line with previous research from the persuasion sciences that show that to a certain extent you need to give people permission or a way out of a previous decision that they may now you know change in light of new information you need to give them that permission before you then ask the question so you know the decision you made at that previous moment in time was the right one given the facts you had to hand but now with this new set of information, this new data, what decision would you make? That you know, updating of the software, if you like, or the information provides some form of permission to you know give people the the ability to change their mind without losing faith. <laughs> funny yeah. That's the key. Yeah. Without losing coming faith. across no, as embarrassed. In a lot of situations, it's people who maybe were right all along often have a stronger psychological need to be shown to be right than to actually win the argument. Hmm. Hmm. And so a lot of, they often want to go back to the past and kick over what happened in the past, even though it's against their interests for winning that argument. And I think that really ties to Carwin's point when I was asking hmm. about how many people does he think will have changed their mind or will it lead to a different outcome? And also when you asked him about Tony Blair. Yeah. <laughs> actually. Yeah. You know, and the never-ending rehashing of the Iraq war, that he will restate all of those arguments and continue to make that case... Well, and also that a lot of us as a general public, at least in the UK, because in the US, Tony Blair is viewed quite differently, mm. to be honest with you. Um, more positively. Yeah, more positively. More positively. In the States. Yeah, much yeah. more positively. Much more. But positively. It's, it's very hard to judge past decisions. You know, we have this thing called hind- hindsight bias. So do we forget that at the time of making the decision, we had, you know, a limited amount of information and we made it for seemingly justifiable decisions but obviously with the benefit of hindsight that decision might change it's, it's a kind of a rose-tinted yeah but I can't um, believe I ever married you <laughs> <laughs> but I was crazily in love with you at the time yeah yeah and for the Iraq war in Britain a lot the of long people say, from us all do you guys got married <laughs> 17 years. No, 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 no. So no it was 15. Years, it was 15. Years, 10 years. Years. 10 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 because 60% well, of people say they opposed it, but at the time only 40%. Yeah. Well, and I mean, and that ties to a number of other things that when we talked to guests who said that, like, they haven't changed their mind or something, but people must have done. People are like, oh, I was always in favour of gay marriage. And it's like, well, actually, not everybody could have been in favour of gay marriage from, like, 1980, because actually at that point, <laughs> a very small number 
of people will. Um, I was going to say, as one, one final thing to wrap up sort of some of this discussion is Carwin brought up the rugby, with which Wales was very successful at the weekend. Um, rugby, for the benefit of our American listeners, is like football, but without padding um, and with bigger thighs, roughly, is my description <laughs> of rugby. Everybody's raising their eyebrows, but no one is disputing. Does, what does, I does the American football, do they run backwards? No, that's rugby. <laughs> you, you can't pass <laughs> No, sorry, I'm a football fan. Sometimes, yes. They have quarterbacks <laughs> and an important thing called tailgating, which is actually the really important thing to okay. do before the match. Really need a lesson on but, rugby. but what Carwin brought up in the rugby and actually sort of chimed through his entire interview was that the UK obviously is, is made up of four nations, England, Scotland, Wales and, and Northern Ireland. And um, Steve, previously, when he came on the podcast, <laughs> told us about football shirts and that people were, if they were vaguely even teams, you gave the example of Manchester United and Manchester City. Um, so think of, of our American listeners, if you don't know, like two of the top teams in the country, really. Um, and they were less inclined to help each other if one was in red or one was yeah. in blue, which is their team colours. Right. Now, the UK's four smaller nations, uh, three smaller nations, which are the bits that are not England, roughly, um, are, I wondered if they were more inclined to help each other um, and have more in common with each other against their big enemy, which in the in the context of rugby is what England is, than than with others. Do you have any insight on that? Well, yeah, the, the, there, there, <laughs> there, there is some research actually that that looks at that, and um, I mean, essentially, it can be framed that context matters uh, and and. We are probably more inclined to look towards the smaller, more similar nation in those situations where we're feeling reasonably comfortable and happy about life. And there are probably minimal threats to our, you know, our existence, our everyday life, our happiness in those instances. But if that context changes, you know, if we suddenly find ourselves in a situation where we may be uh, more inclined to be under threat or there's some anxiety or some uncertainty, then we are more predisposed to look to the more dominant messenger or nation or partner in those instances. So you've, you've got that kind of context of, are we feeling sure and certain about ourselves? And in that instance, we probably look to that kind of softer, more uh, similar partner in those instances, but in those instances where we feel perhaps a little uh, more under threat, there's ambiguities, as I say, and uncertainty, in those circumstances, we may look towards the more dominant parental character so partner really, in those instances. really interesting about that is if, does that mean, for example, if there was a recession, you would expect people in Scotland to be less likely to want to leave the UK than they might be otherwise? Because like all of the polling and the political instincts are quite the opposite, you know, that if Brexit is a disaster, which there is actually no guarantee it will be. I realise a couple of us in this room are, are slightly more on the Remain side of things, but, you know, there, there really isn't. It's worth acknowledging that, you know, and Carwin's prediction was that if the if Brexit went through... Um, in a, a difficult and damaging way, it was more likely to break up the union than bring it together. And you're sort of suggesting the opposite. Well, I'm. I mean, first of all, I have to state that I, I am no expert in Brexit whatsoever. Um, I don't think anyone that claims to be an expert. I know. Yeah, but but it. I don't think it's a surprise that 
those folks in public life that are dominant by disposition typically point people's attention towards the challenges, the uncertainty, the risks, the losses that we face. They, 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 it's almost like they're stoking this uh, feeling of uncertainty that then requires the dominant leader to come in and kind of take us in the right direction. Um, whereas by contrast, if we're feeling reasonably comfortable and safe about things, then a more connected, softer, warmer messenger or, or leader in that context is probably going to be more appropriate to that situation and we're more inclined to perhaps gravitate towards them. I you were talking about that, it reminded me of that thing of wartime and peacetime leaders. Mm. Right? That, like, that's quite an interesting phenomenon that connects to that and the different sort of personality attributes that people want depending on what's happening in the rest of the world. Think about Thatcher, Churchill. Yeah, yeah. Well, and to a certain extent, Trump, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. In yeah. the face of crisis. Yeah. So I was trying to avoid saying his name by actually yeah. alluding to that exact <laughs> No, no, it's fine. It's fine right. And I appreciate that you're a behavioural scientist, not a political scientist. <laughs> actually, sometimes studying people's behaviour is a lot more effective than studying people's uh, politics. We should draw this... Um, to a close I want to say a huge thank you to Rob and Steve for joining us um, to our listeners if you want to find out a bit more about Brexit then there'll be um, uh, some links and there is a real day-to-day drama with it we highly recommend the Brexit cast podcast which is um, done by the BBC and is um, entertaining viewing and often accompanied by cake and wine if that is your thing um, meanwhile you'll find other links that relate to what we've talked about today on the Open Democracy podcast uh, website that goes along with this podcast um, we're really grateful to Open Democracy for sharing this show with their very many readers to Caroline Crapton um, who produces our podcast and makes us sound better every single week if you have any feedback please do let us know and playing out with us will be Kevin McLeod um, whose dreams become real is licensed under Creative Commons thank you for listening